Okay, so let's uh, open up to Romans 7. We've, we've studied through verse 12. So the last section that we have to take is verses 13 to 25. It's the last part of the chapter. So let's go ahead and read that together. Romans 7, beginning in verse 13. Therefore did that which is good, and he's referring to the law, as you'll see if check out verse 12. The, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing that dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willingness present in me, but the doing of the good is not me. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin, which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Lord, we come to you this morning and pray that you give us clarity. Lord, this is a difficult passage, and it's it's above my ability to be able to like discern like a sharp razor between these things. But I pray that you would give me the ability to at least shed light on this passage so that people can evaluate it, your, your saints can evaluate it from different perspectives. We pray that you'd help us to understand what it is you want us to know from this passage. So we just ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans 7, right after Romans 8, is probably the most famous passage in the book. It's really well known. Everybody, because everybody can relate to what's going on in this passage. They feel the things that Paul is expressing here. But it's also a very controversial passage because there are at least three main views of how Christians historically have understood this. Three major views. And all of these views have, have verses within the text that we just read that they can use to support their position. And sometimes they're really good arguments which makes it hard for the interpreter. <laughs> it makes it real hard for the interpreter. Like, Anthony and I have been going back and forth. We've met and talked. What does this mean? What is he talking about me as a Christian? Is he talking about a non-Christian? Is he talking about an immature Christian? And those are the basic views. There's the mature Christian view, there's the immature Christian view, and there's the non-Christian view. So the mature Christian view says, this is what we should expect from every Christian's experience. Whether you've been walking with the Lord for 50 years or you just began to follow Jesus, everybody as a Christian experiences what Paul is talking about here in Romans 7. The immature Christian who says, no, it's not the mature Christian, it's not all Christians, it's just those that are immature that are trying to keep the law and the energy of their own flesh, and they need to get out of Romans 7 and into Romans chapter 8 as fast as they can. And if they'll do that, then they'll experience the deeper life. So these immature Christians need to grow and mature in the Lord so that they're really living out Romans 8 and they're walking in the Spirit. And then there's the third view, which is the non-Christian view, which says the person here is not a Christian. He's a non-Christian. He's unregenerate, never been born of the Holy Spirit. 
Okay. In 1991, I was pastoring Milpitas Bible Fellowship in the Bay Area, and I taught through the Book of Romans. And in 1991, I taught that the person in Romans 7 was a mature Christian, that this is the experience we should expect from every believer. About 1999, I grappled with the text again, and I changed my mind. I thought, you know, I don't think I interpreted that correctly when I taught it in 91. And at this point, I no longer hold to the mature Christian view, and I don't hold to the immature Christian view. I believe, and I hold this humbly, because I could be wrong, but I hold it humbly that I think he's talking about an unregenerate person. And I'm going to share the reasons why. Yeah, email. Okay, so will another option be that he's talking about a Jewish man who he used to be? Yes, that's who I'm talking about. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I... I believe if you boil it all down to like one sentence, I think he's talking about himself as a Jew, unregenerate, trying to keep the law before he has the Holy Spirit. So those are the, the three major views. Uh, now it's really difficult for me to come to the position I've come to because my favorite Bible teachers disagree with me. John MacArthur believes he's a Christian. Uh, John Piper believes he's a Christian. And you won't know this name, but Mark Webb, who's a friend of mine and an awesome gospel preacher from Olive Branch, Mississippi, he thinks he's a Christian. So I have to disagree with some of the guys I respect. I love Sproul. You love them all? I love Sproul. Oh, Sproul? He probably does too, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, so what, what we're going to do this today is I'm going to give you the reasons why some people believe this man is a Christian. And then I'm going to give you the reasons why some think that he's not a Christian. And I'll let you decide what are the stronger arguments from the text. Okay, let's start with reasons why this man is seen to be a believer. The first one is that Romans 6 and Romans 8 are describing the Christian life. Nobody disagrees about that. And so they say, well, if Romans 6 is describing a Christian, and Romans 8 is describing a Christian, shouldn't we just assume then that Romans 7 is also describing a Christian? Because don't they run right into each other? They come together as a unit, don't they? My answer to that is, well, some parts of chapter 6 and some parts of chapter 8 are not describing a Christian. For example, if you went back to chapter 6 and look at verse 19, pick it up in the middle of that verse, he says, just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. Now that's not describing a Christian, right? That's a non-Christian. Or verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? That's talking about the person before he came to Christ, how he was a slave of sin. Also in chapter 8, Verses uh, 5 through 8, we have a non-Christian description. He says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it doesn't subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I submit to you, the person who is in the flesh is someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. All he has is his flesh. I'll, I'll speak about that more when we get to it, but Romans 7, 5 also talks about the person who's in the flesh. So here we have a section of Romans 8. It's describing the experience of a non-Christian. We also have in chapter 6, Paul taking some time to express the experience of a non-Christian. Therefore, this argument sort of falls apart, because not all of it is talking about the Christian life. And even if it was, even if all of chapter 6 was about a Christian, and all of chapter 8 was about a Christian, why does that mean we have to assume that chapter 7 is about a Christian? It, it doesn't. Okay, so that's the first reason. Second reason, and this is weightier. This is a better argument than the first one. Paul shifts from the past tense in verse 7 to 13 to the present tense in verses 14 to 25. Let's just read that. 
Not the whole thing, but we'll pull out some verses. So, starting in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is death. What tense is he speaking in in these verses? Future, present, or past? It's past tense. Because he uses the word produced. That's past. Um, verse 7, he said, I would not have come to no sin. That's past tense. Verse 9, I was. Now that, that's our clue right there. Whenever you're speaking in the past tense, you use was. If you're speaking in the present tense, what do you use? Is or am. I am. So, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Again, deceived is past tense, killed is past tense. So then, the law is... Now we're in the present. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, verse 13, he goes right back to the past tense again. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly, utterly sinful. You see all the past tense verbs he uses? Then verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. I am. Now that sounds like present tense, doesn't it? Verse 15. For what I am doing, I don't understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. And all the way through the rest of the chapter, it's present tense. It's what I am doing. So this is what, how the argument goes. In verses... 7 to 13, Paul's talking about his past life before he came to Christ. Starting in verse 14 through the rest of the chapter, he's describing his present experience as a Christian. And that's why he goes from the past tense to the present tense. You follow that argument? That's a biggie for this view. We put a lot of emphasis on that. Okay, what, what would we even say to that? Well, First of all, we have to understand the tense of the verbs in the Greek language because they're not the same as in English. In English, if I use the present tense, I'm talking about what I'm doing right now. But in the Greek, the tense of a verb is not so much about the time of the action, but the kind of action. In other words, if I want to express the fact that I'm doing a certain action continually over a period of time, I use the present tense. I don't know if that's sinking in. But if, if I, if I want to say, I... Going to work. Yeah, I'm going to work, and it's, my work is 14 hours away. I'm going to work, and I'm going, and I'm going, and I'm going to work. I'll use the present tense if I'm, if I'm writing in Greek. Uh, so it's, it's the kind of action that, that is, is the, uh, the tense of the Greek, the Greek words. Also... I think there is a possibility also that the author, Paul, switches tenses because he wants the people reading this to relive what he was going through before he came to Christ. And so by switching to the present tense, he makes it come alive. It becomes vivid and dramatic, and they, they're, they're going through with him. It's kind of like when you tell a story to somebody. And instead of saying, you know, I went to the store and bought a candy bar and then I rode my bike home, you say, yeah, I'm going to the store and I go up to the cash register and I see that Mars bar and I throw down my 75 cents and he gives it to me. I put it all in the present tense because I want them to relive the story with me. I think it's possible that Paul was doing some of that because he wants people to relive what it was like for him as a Jew, an unregenerate Jew, to try to live this life keeping the law before he even had the Holy Spirit. So come with me, let, let me bring you into my life and what it was like and let me help you relive it with me. Okay, a third argument that this is a Christian 
is because Romans chapter 7 seems a lot like Galatians 5.17. And everybody agrees that Galatians 5.17 is describing Christian experience. So let's read Galatians 5.17. Here we go. Okay, Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, in both of these passages, you have a conflict going on, right? Between two opposing forces. Romans 7, you've got a conflict, definitely. Here in Galatians 5.17, you've got the flesh and the spirit in conflict with each other, so that you cannot do the things that you please. True. But there is some major differences between these two passages. Romans 7 is not about the flesh and the spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit doesn't come up one single time from verse 7 to verse 25. He's absent. He's gone. He's not even there. What you do have is the law and sin in conflict together. Here's the law, and here's my sin that's butting up against this law, and so I'm doing the very evil I don't want to do. You see? So the law and sin are in Romans 7, the flesh and the spirit are in Galatians chapter 5. There's also another major difference. Romans 7 shows us that Paul was defeated. It doesn't, it doesn't show victory, it shows defeat. An ongoing, continual defeat as the law comes up against his own flesh and his sin, and it's this continual defeat in his life, Whereas uh, Galatians chapter 5 shows the potential for victory in verse 16. Notice verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You see, that's a world of difference than the wretched man who wants to be delivered in Romans chapter 7. Okay, let's look at another. Everyone says this one. And this one's not on the board, so you're not going to see it, but I just thought of this this morning. <laughs> People say, I experienced the same thing that I read about here in Romans chapter 7, and I'm a Christian. Therefore, this has got to be describing a Christian. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, what's wrong with that? Our hermeneutic, <laughs> we're interpreting the Bible based on my personal experience, which is dangerous. And it can lead you into error. Rather than taking my experience and drawing out an interpretation. Let's look at the scripture itself. Let's look at it in its context. Let's look at the meaning of the words. Let's try to determine what the original author meant to his original audience and then draw out our interpretation. That's a much safer way to come to a good interpretation of scripture than just basing it on my own personal experience. And then a fifth reason. Throughout this chapter, Paul says that he hates sin and he loves the law. And he does. Look at verse 15. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Now, what was he doing that he hated? He was, he was breaking the law. The law told him one thing and he ended up doing another. And he hated that. Also, we have verse 22, where he says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, so, I love the law, and I hate sin. And people who take the Christian view say, well, that's not possible for an unregenerate, lost person to love the law and to hate their sin. Okay, and that sounds like a pretty solid argument. But let me just make a few comments, and you tell me if you're thinking. Well, before we make the comments, go back to chapter 2, and let's see how Paul viewed the law and how Jews in his day viewed the law before they came to Christ. Right. So chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. And here we have unsaved Jews, and what are they doing? They're relying on the law. Or verse 20, Paul says that they lifted themselves as a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. They relied on the law, and they knew the law, and they wanted to teach the law. And then verse 23, he says, you who boast in the law, 
They boasted in the law. They boasted in the law, they relied on the law, and they knew and taught the law. So the law was something that the Jew loved. And especially the Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. The Pharisee spent their whole life trying to understand the law and keep it. That was the goal of their entire life. So I would say, no, no, in Romans chapter 7, that definitely could describe a Pharisee that loved the law of God because he knew God gave it, wanted to keep it desperately, and whenever he found that he failed in keeping it, he would hate that because his whole life was about keeping the law. So I I do think there is a good explanation for this, uh, actually not being a Christian, even though statements like loving the law and hating sin are involved here. Remember Herod in Mark 6, I think it's verse 23 or so, it says of Herod that he heard John the Baptist gladly. Herod was an unsaved man, but he liked to hear John the Baptist preach. So if Herod could love to hear John the Baptist preach, can an unsaved Pharisee love the law that he's trying to keep? I would say so. Okay, so those are the strongest reasons for the view that this guy is a Christian. And some of them are pretty good. You have to make up your own mind on that. And that's the way I first believed it. Um, but I've since changed my mind. So let me give you reasons why I now believe that this man is not a Christian. And to me, the strongest one is understanding Paul's flow of thought in Romans chapter 7. If you get this, I think there's no escaping the conclusion you come to. Because what Paul does in chapter 7 is after the first six verses, he asks two different questions and then he answers them. That's all he's doing. These are objections that are going to flow out of what he's taught in verses 1 through 6. Here's the first question. Is the law sin? That's verse 7. That flows out of verse 5, where it says, For if while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Okay, what are you saying, Paul? The law stirs up sinful passions? Is the law somehow sinful then? So that brings him to verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Answer? May it never be. And then he gives this long explanation, verses 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, and then he comes to his conclusion and sums up his conclusion in verse 12. And we know he's summing up his argument because he starts with the two little words, so then. Right? So then tells you I'm coming to my climax. So then, is the law sin? No. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He's done with this question. He's packaged it up, put a bow around it, set it aside. That one's done. Verse 13 starts a second question. Therefore, did that which is good, the law, become a cause of death for me? Where would he get that question from? Verse 11, where it says, For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Did the commandment kill me? What's the culprit in my death? Is it, is it the law? Is it the commandment? And so Paul is going to take from verse 13 to verse 25 to answer that question. He never brings up any other questions. And he always follows the exact same formula. State the question, then say, may it never be, then give your answer to the question, and then at the very end, have a so then statement. And he has a so then statement in verse 25. So then. On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Okay. Now, if that's what Paul is doing, is he simply asking two questions and answering two different questions, then what you have to notice is that verse 14 is not the beginning of a new paragraph. You don't start... Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. You really, really need to get this. He starts his answer in verse 13, and he doesn't finish to verse 25. That means verse 14, he's not going off on a new subject. Even though he switches to the present tense, he is still answering the question in verse 13. Notice he starts verse 14 with a little tiny three-letter word. You see it? Don't miss it. For, F-O-R. Now, do you start a new paragraph with the word for? No. Do you start a new subject with the word for? 
No, the word for tells you that it's connected to the verse before it. That tells us that verse 14 is not some new paragraph, some new thought. He's explaining what he just said in verse 13. In fact, verses 14 to 25 are an explanation of verse 13. What he says in verse 13 is that, I want to show you how sinful sin is. Sin is so sinful that it caused my death by using something that's really holy and righteous and good, the law. The law is not the villain. It's not the culprit in your death. Your own sin is. And now he's going to go on from verse after verse after verse to emphasize that by showing what it did in his life as an unregenerate Pharisee before he came to Christ. So, and, and I've checked a bunch of Bible translations. Even my own favorite, the New American Standard, starts a new paragraph in verse 14. And I say that's wrong. Whoever translated this should not have started a new paragraph there. The NIV does it, and the NLT does it. But I give credit to the ESV. It has no new paragraph here. It starts a new paragraph in verse 13 and runs to the end of the chapter. And I think they're seeing his argument. You have to see his flow of thought in his argument. Okay, so verse 14 to 25 is Paul's explanation that sin is exceedingly sinful because it used something so good, the law, and brought about my death through. And he ends up with his argument with this cry, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Now, if I'm right, this is an unconverted Jew crying out, how am I ever going to be free from this power of sin within me that keeps me from obeying the law of God, which I really want to keep? What can I do? The answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. There's your answer. It's not that you need to pull your, yourself up by your bootstraps or you need to try a little harder. You need, you need a Savior. You need someone else. You need a divine person who came down from heaven and died for sinners to set you free. So I think verse 24 is the cry of an unconverted man who knows that he needs deliverance. Okay, that's my first one. If you see the structure of the chapter, it becomes pretty apparent that it's not Paul talking about his past in verses 7 through 12, and then, I'm sorry, verses 7 to 13, and then his present in verses 14 to 25. No, verses 14 to 25 are connected with his present. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Connected to his past, even though it's in the present tense, because it's talking about this ongoing, continual state that he was in. Okay, let's go to the second reason. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says some things that are absolutely contrary to clear statements that he makes about the Christian life. In the book of Romans itself, we're not looking all throughout the Bible. We're going to get our answers right from Romans. So if Paul is saying things that are absolutely inconsistent with things that he's already said and things he's about to say, then we've got to be understanding this wrong. Let me give you an example. There's, there's four phrases I want you to see. Verse 14, Paul says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. Okay. The law is spiritual, but I'm not, I'm not spiritual. I'm of flesh. And I want you to think, would Paul describe a Christian that way? Would Paul say the Christian is of flesh? He's not spiritual. He's of flesh. Well, let's look at other things that he said in this letter. Look at verse 5. For while we were in the flesh. And what he means by that is while we were not saved. How do I know that? Well, if we keep reading, it becomes really clear. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now, see there, there's the clue. While this was going on, the law was producing fruit for death. But now something different has happened. We have been released from the law. We find out from verse 4 that we died to the law with Christ because we were united to Jesus Christ. That released us from the law. So every person who is in Christ, their experience is described here in verse 6. In our past, 
we were we bore fruit for death because we were in the flesh. But now we're no longer in the flesh. Now we've been released from the law. We died to that by which we were bound, so that now we serve in newness of the spirit. Notice the word spirit there. Here's the definition of a Christian. A person who possesses the indwelling Holy Spirit. Here's the definition of a non-Christian. A person who doesn't possess the indwelling Holy Spirit. In verse 6, he's got the Spirit. In verse 5, he doesn't. Also, if we go over to chapter 8, look at verse 6. He says, for the mind set on the flesh is death. I believe what he means by that is the non-Christian, he has an unregenerate mind. He, he sets his mind on the flesh. The mind set on the flesh is death. It leads to physical death and eternal death. But the mind set on the spirit, that's the believer, is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice the phrase there. Those who are in the flesh, they can't please God. Now, is Paul going to describe a Christian as somebody who can't please God? No, of course not. The Christian pleases God, but the non-Christian can't. So he uses the phrase in the flesh in Romans 8, 8, and Romans 7, 5. Both times he's talking about an unregenerate person. And then he uses the phrase in verse 14, but I am of flesh. Okay, it's not exactly the same phrase, so we can't be as dogmatic as we'd like to be here. But he still uses the, the phrase in the flesh to refer to the non-Christian. And then he says, I am of flesh. I forgot to mention one verse. And that's verse 9. Verse 8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh. <laughs> how, how clear can it be? But you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So a Christian is in the Spirit. A non-Christian is in the flesh. And that's how Paul describes those two different people. So when he says, but the law is spiritual, I'm not spiritual, I'm a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Is Paul likely to use that description to, to, to point to a, a regenerate person? Do you guys know what I mean when I say regenerate? I need maybe explain that. Born again. Born again. Just born again. Okay. So that's the first reason. He uses this phrase which sounds odd to my ears, especially because in the same book he uses the phrase in the flesh to describe someone who's definitely not saved. Okay. The second phrase he uses... Before I go there, I just saw something I need to mention. In Romans 7, this man tries to keep the law and fails miserably. But go over to chapter 8, verse 4. Notice what happens here. And here we're describing a Christian, for sure. Because there's no condemnation in verse 1 to him. He's in Christ Jesus. All those things describe a believer. And it says in verse 4, So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In chapter 8, he fulfills the requirement of the law by the Spirit. In chapter 7, he doesn't. He breaks the law continually. His life is a defeat. But in chapter 8, there's victory. Now, that tells me if chapter 8 is talking about a Christian, then chapter 7 really can't be. Okay, let's move on to the next phrase. Sold into bondage to sin. Now, to me... That's a clincher. <laughs> because remember, we studied chapter 6. And he says, you're not in bondage to sin in chapter 6. He says again and again and again. So we can't mistake him. Let's just go back and look at him. In chapter 6, verse 6, he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And then we find also in verse 14, Sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. Or verse 22, But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. Okay. 
He says, your old self was crucified with Christ so that you would be free from sin, so that you'd no longer be slaves to sin. You're not under sin. You're under grace. You've been freed from sin. Now you're enslaved to God. And then in chapter 7, he says, I am sold into bondage to sin. You see my heart? I have a hard time accepting is, can that possibly be a Christian? He describes it in exact opposite terms, the chapter before. And literally, the Greek is sold under sin. Now, we have Paul using that phrase, under sin, in this book before, in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, he says in verse 9, What then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Who's he talking about here in chapter 3? It's not the church. This, this is the lost people of humanity that he's describing, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. They're under sin, meaning under the domination of sin. And that's what he says we have been delivered from by being united to Christ when we're born again. Okay. There's another phrase here that we have to at least consider. It's in verse 19. And it's the phrase, practicing evil. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Now, depending on the translation of the Bible you have, it may not see practice evil. The New American Standard does, but it does connote on giving yourself in an ongoing way to evil. This book. Now, what does the rest of the Bible say about practicing evil? Let's look at a few passages. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty, a pretty close parable. He says, I practice evil in chapter 7. He says, but if you practice evil, you won't even get into the kingdom of God. You won't inherit it. And he's writing to the church when he writes that statement. Okay. We also have the statement of John in 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, verse 9. Okay. This one's an especially strong and especially clear. No one who is born of God practices sin. I mean, we can stop right there. <laughs> what do you say to that? No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin. He cannot go on practicing it because he's born of God. There's something about being born again that stops a person from going on living, practicing the same kind of sinful life they used to. Now, you definitely can't sin as a Christian, but you can't go on practicing it like you used to do before you were converted. But Paul says in Romans 7 that he practiced evil, which just puts a huge question mark in my mind. Is he really talking about himself as a Christian? Because he, he seems to be contradicting that in the rest of his letters. Okay, there's one other phrase I want you to see from Romans 7, and it's in 7.23. 7.23, Paul says, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. He's a prisoner. A prisoner of the law of sin. A prisoner. Is he going to describe a Christian as a prisoner to sin? Or this law of sin boiling in his members? Well, in another book, 2 Timothy chapter 2, he talks about being held captive, which is to be a prisoner. And he says in 2 Timothy 2, 25, he says, 
Timothy, with gentleness, you are to correct those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Who is he talking about here in these verses? Is this a saved person or a lost person? It's got to be lost because this person has not repented. They don't know the truth yet. They haven't come to their senses, and they haven't escaped from the snare of the devil. They're still being held captive by the devil to do the devil's will. Okay, so a lost person is a captive. Paul says that he was a prisoner of the law of sin in chapter 7. Well, that would tell me that he's still, he's still lost. Because that's what it sounds like here in 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. Okay, let's move on to a, a third argument for this being a non-Christian. And that argument comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And it comes from a little word, now. <laughs> there is, there, or therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What do you mean now? Why did he put that little word in there? Well, I think it's because there's been a radical change from the person in chapter 7 to the person in chapter 8. The person in chapter 7 didn't have the Holy Spirit. When you get to chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is everywhere. In the first 17 verses, he comes up 15 times. He, he's absent from chapter 7. He's flooded in chapter 8, which tells me that we're going from an unregenerate to a regenerate condition, and he's describing him now. So, what exactly is Paul doing? Well, Romans 7 verse 5 describes the person who is in the flesh. And I think verses 7 to 25 are a more lengthy unfolding or exposition of who that guy is who's in the flesh. And what happens when the law butts up against him? What happens? Well, he describes the experience in 7 to 25. It exposes his sin. It arouses his sin. It brings death. And it brings misery. So he cries out as a wretched man. But verse 6 of Romans 7 describes a regenerate person. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve a newness of the spirit and not an oldness of the letter. And now in chapter 8, Paul is going to expand on that man. That's why the word spirit comes up all the time, because he serves in newness of the spirit. And so now he's talking about the Holy Spirit everywhere in chapter 8, because this man has the spirit. He's invoked by the spirit. So those are the arguments for him not being a Christian. So I guess you're going to have to, if you've never <laughs> struggled with this and grappled with it, you need to do it. It's in your Bible. It's there for a reason. It's got a meaning. We need to figure out what he meant. If I come to the right interpretation, and I say that if, because we're prone to make mistakes, but if I have, well, then what, would that, what difference would that make for our lives? What practical application would we make for our lives? Well, I'll, I'll give you one for the Christian one for the non-Christian. The Christian. Paul's not describing your experience in Romans 7. If I'm right, he's not describing you. He's describing you, well, he's describing himself as a Jew before he came to Christ. And if he's not describing Christian experience, then don't go to Romans 7 to make an excuse for your sin. Or to justify it. Or to excuse it. Well, Paul said, I can't do the things I want to do, and I always do the things I end up not wanting to do. If even Paul said that, then surely I can say that. You know, we can subtly start using it as an excuse not to pursue holiness. Now, of course, the Bible does teach that Christians will fall, Christians will sin. We need to make that clear in case I, I've been pressing the other side so much, maybe you're not getting that. But the Bible's clear on that too. James 3.2 says, we all stumble in many ways. We all, everybody stumbles in many different ways. Okay, we agree with that. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. 
He says, um, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay, so none of us can say we're without sin. None of us can say we never sin. We would be going against the Word of God if we were to say that. It's true. We sin in many ways. The difference is, sin is present with the Christian, but sin does not dominate yeah, the Christian. Yeah, you are not left in a hopeless condition to overcome your sin. Now, if all you had was Romans 7 to describe your life, you would come to the conclusion, well, it's pretty much hopeless. I'm a wretched man. Unless God does something, then this isn't ever going to change. But you don't live in Romans 7. You live in Galatians 5, 16, and 17. That's where I think the Christian lives. And that says, um, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. There is hope for you to overcome your sin. Whatever that sin is that you're dealing with today, you don't have to go on for the rest of your life committing that sin over and over and over. If you will walk by the Spirit, you won't do it, he says. Now, what does that mean, to walk by the Spirit? That's pretty important, isn't it? That's, that's how we are guaranteed victory over sin, walking by the Spirit. How do we do that? What, what's that all about? Well, walking by the Spirit. Paul talks about, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18. Okay, here we go. I'll just read the whole thing. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, notice his change of the phrase. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. I submit to you that being led by the Spirit is the same thing as walking by the Spirit. He just uses those phrases interchangeably to describe the same thing. So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? A lot of Christians think to be led by the Spirit is to have a mystical experience where God speaks to you and tells you to do something or not to do something or to go here or not to go there. That's to be led by the Spirit. But that's not how Paul uses the phrase in the Bible. Go back to Romans 8, and I'll show this to you. In Romans 8, verses 13 and 14, he helps us understand what it means to be led by the Spirit. He says in verse 13, If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Because that tells you that you, you're still not saved. If you can go on living according to the flesh, practicing evil, well, then you're not converted. You're going to die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you're going to live because you're regenerate. For, notice that little three-letter word again that connects these two verses. For, verse 14 is going to explain what he means in verse 13 by living by the Spirit or putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. To be led by the Spirit of God is to depend upon the Holy Spirit to put to death sin in your life. Yeah. from these two verses. So if you want victory over sin, you've got to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You can't put to death sin on your own power. You're going to be so frustrated. You're going to be like the guy in Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, continually defeated. You've got to learn to walk according to the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit to put sin to death. And so it, it involves prayer, it involves faith, it involves trusting God continually when you are up against that sin. It involves going to the Word and feeding the truth of the Word into your own soul so that you have something strong to battle with. But you're not battling in your own strength. You're battling by the Spirit to put sin to death. So that's my word for you who are Christians. Romans 7, I don't think it's talking about you. Galatians 5 is. And if you want to you have victory over the flesh, walk by the Spirit, and be led by the Spirit. Walk in relationship with Christ. Jesus is the answer, not, not your own willpower. Okay, but if you're here today and you're not a Christian, 
what does Romans 7 have to say? It has to say that the law of God is only going to produce defeat, misery, and wretchedness in your life. You may know what you ought to do, and you may want to do the right thing, but you're going to find yourself failing again and again because you're still under the power of sin. You're still a slave to sin in Scripture. And so if you are not a Christian, come to Jesus Christ. He can break the chains that you are bound in. He can set you free. He can deliver you from a life of domination by sin. In fact, make this your prayer. Lord, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Oh, it's God, through Jesus Christ. Thanks be unto God who can do this. And set your mind and heart upon God through Christ and put your faith in him, and he can deliver you and set you free, forgive you of every sin. And you can find yourself in the experience of chapter 8. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So turn away from everything else that would keep you from Christ. That's what repentance is. Just turn away from that. That's not going to do you any good. Turn to him in full trust and confidence in Christ. We'll break the chains. This way. Lord, we tremble before your word. I tremble, Lord, as someone who you've called to teach because I know that it's difficult sometimes to come to conclusions and, and know that we are being accurate with it. So I pray that you separate anything of what I have said that is not true from what your truth is and let your people hear your voice and let them see what your word says. Lord, above everything, we pray that we would know that we can't overcome sin by the power of the Spirit. That we would have hope that we will be sanctified. That your Spirit is working in us and he's going to present us faultless and blameless before the throne. If there's anyone that's come here today that's not saved, Lord, pour out your Spirit on them. Pour out a spirit of repentance, Lord. Lord, engender and enable trust in Jesus Christ. May a new relationship be born today between the Savior and them. May they, may they marry Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>